welcome to Tell the Damn Story. I'm Christopher Ryan, an award-winning hybrid author, teacher, multi-platform creative, and former award-winning journalist. Also on the mic is Kids Comic Con and the Color of Comics exhibition founder, Alex Simmons, an award winner since 1996, including an Inkpot Award from the San Diego Comic Con and three, count them three, count them three Glyph Awards from the East Coast Black Age of Comics Con. He has written Sherlock Holmes, Tarzan, Batman, Superman, and Scooby-Doo, Archie, among so many more, and is the creator of the legendary African-American soldier of fortune, Aaron Blackjack Day. On Tell the Damn Story, we celebrate the trials and tribulations, the challenges and joys of creativity, and hopefully along the way, help you decide how you want to tell your damn story. All right, all right. So here we are on an exciting episode with exciting people. Uh, Chris and I are always, you know, excited about everything. But we're particularly excited today because we are here with the one, the only, Jesse Holland. Jesse, thank you so much for joining us, man. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's certainly my pleasure to be here. <laughs> uh, Jesse, um... I've done some research on you, and and I, I want to kind of ask a few questions. First of all, we have to lay the foundation. You've been reading comic books your whole life, yes? That is 100% true. I suspect How, I learned to read on comic books. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. How young when you started? Uh, well, I can tell you the earliest I can remember goes back to when I was five or six years old uh, in Orange, the Orange Mountain neighborhood of Memphis, Tennessee, which is where we lived when my father bought me some of my first comic books, which were Marvel comic books way back in the early 70s. What's wow. the earliest one you can remember? Ah, the, early, the earliest three I can remember are uh, a, a copy of Avengers, where okay. Hawkeye ties up uh, Henry Peter Gyrick, who <laughs> found out they left Avenger, the door to Avenger Mansion open. Uh, a copy of The Incredible Hulk when he was stuck in the crossroads of infinity oh, and um, ran across a war-torn landscape and found out it was a result of a Kang attack. Sure. And a copy of Fantastic Four. Uh, I believe that one, I, that one, I'm, I'm still to this day fuzzy on what that one was about. I remember, I remember seeing, uh, the thing and the human torch arguing over something, but that one, <laughs> so apparently it was every issue not... of the Fantastic Four. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So that one isn't easiest to find as the first two. I've gone back and found those two and I actually own copies of those now. Cause I remember those storylines so clearly. Wow. But I can't remember. I do remember it was a Fantastic Four, uh, but I don't remember which one. Wow. That was, that's beautiful. See, now, the, I got to point out here, I got to point out here that you just named Chris's top, top favorite superhero. You want to guess which one that is? I got oh. a hint. I got a hint. <laughs> Let me guess the Hulk. <laughs> no. Uh, not, that, oh, no. Hawkeye. Yeah. Hawkeye. Uh, yeah. Okay, I'm going either the goes, purple pants with the Hulk or the purple oh, yeah, with Hawkeye. Uh, it goes Hawkeye and the Falcon are my top two, and then Cab is three. Uh, oh, 
Oh, a little tech problem there because his phone just did a little little flip there. But while we're waiting for Chris to to straighten that out, uh, Jesse, so you were you were born and raised in Mississippi. Okay, so I get to claim both Mississippi and Memphis. So I was actually born in a small town called Holly Springs, Mississippi. Uh, I just got back from my parents' house maybe a couple of weeks ago. So Holly Springs is where I was born. But soon after I was born, my parents moved from Holly Springs to Memphis. So I spent just about the next 10 years in Memphis before they turn around, they moved back to Holly Springs. So I get to count both of them as my hometown. So I I tell people I'm from Holly Springs, but in all honesty, I'm from 15 miles outside of Holly Springs. So my parents are farmers. And to this day, they still live on the family farm. Oh, so what did they, what did they raise? Uh, cotton, cattle, soybeans, wow. horses. These days, wow. they've diversified into goats, sheep, uh, honeybees, chickens, and, and truck farming. I mean, as my parents have gotten older, my father can't handle the acreage the way he used to. So he's right. diversified a lot into a lot of smaller uh, crops and smaller animals rather than the cows and sure. the pigs that we did when I was growing up. Wow. Um, but in addition to all of that, my parents, both of my parents were also teachers. So my dad taught in the Memphis City Schools and my mom taught in the Mississippi County Schools my whole life. So when we lived in Holly Springs, my dad would drive the hour into Memphis to teach. And when we lived in Memphis, my mom would drive the hour out to Mississippi to teach. So I really do count both places as home because I've spent my my entire life going between one or the other. And even to this day, when I go home, I have to fly to Memphis to then drive out to my parents' house. Oh, that's great. That's great. Uh, this this only augments what I was think, seeing when I was doing some research. Because, okay, so you grew up at least partially on a farm, right? Reading Marvel comics. Now, that must have absolutely exploded your brain because... <laughs> Yeah, they're so similar. Thing. The universes are so similar. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, but from those beginnings, you go to the University of Mississippi in Oxford, and then you go to the Associated Press where you're a state house reporter, congressional reporter, White House reporter, national labor, Supreme Court reporter. Um, you got, and- you remember, you're one of the few reporters I read that have credentials to cover all three of the major government bodies. Mm -hmm. Now that's, yeah, that's a journey that you would say is pretty super heroic. How did that happen? (laughs) Okay. So one of the things I, I, I always tell people is that I always knew I was going to be some kind of writer, Mm -hmm. even from childhood, from the point where I was reading those comic books, I always knew I was going to be a writer. And one of the things I tell people was comic books was one of the ways I got into writing. Ah. Because when you lived in the middle of nowhere, and back then we did live in the middle of nowhere, there were only three television stations. I'm sorry, there were four. You had ABC, CBS, uh, NBC, and we got two PBS stations, one from Memphis and one from Mississippi. And those were the all, that was the only entertainment. 
And my parents were like, we have one TV. It's going to be on what we want to watch. Oh, so oh, you were left to entertain yourself. Right. And what a lot of people who read comic books now don't realize is in the past, they came out once a month. And if you were really into a storyline, you were stuck for a whole month waiting to find out what would happen next. Mm -hmm. I don't have that kind of patience. So I started writing for myself what I think should happen next. And I got into writing stories like that because I really, really wanted to know what was going to happen with the Avengers next month. And I really, really could not wait to see what was going to happen with the Fantastic Four or the Justice League or Superman or Batman. So I started scribbling it down for myself. And of course, being bitterly disappointed when the professional writers were not thinking the same way I was thinking. So They were wrong. <laughs> they were wrong. <laughs> but but that, I, got, I started writing my own stories. And I did go through this one little tiny phase where I started trying to draw some of the stuff and quickly learned I was not an artist. You're an artist, but you're a writer, not an illustrator. Right. Okay, exactly. Exactly. I learned early on that the idea of me drawing the things I was writing just wasn't going to be in my future. So I just started writing stuff and I started writing in high school and continued on in college. In addition, by the way, to studying journalism in college, I also studied writing. I actually have an English degree and studied under the author Barry Hanna in, while I was at Ole Miss. And Barry Hanna would introduce me to other writers I got to speak, got to, speak to and meet like Stephen King, Alex Haley, Donna Tart. So I got into some of the Mississippi writing community even then. But I also learned something else growing up on the farm. I also learned I did not like being poor. Ah. And if there's nothing else you can say about many beginning writers, that most of them are broke. (laughs) So I decided early on, I didn't like being broke. And there was one writing industry where you could write every day and you still got a salary. Wasn't much of one, but you got a salary. (laughs) That was to be a journalist. Yep. So I decided to start writing news stories, figuring that that would be a good way to meet interesting people, get a lot of writing practice and go places. So I decided to major in journalism in college and it just I found out I happened to be good at it. So I just kept doing that and sort of put the creative writing to the side for a while. Um, while in college, I actually wrote a comic. I co-wrote a comic strip that appeared in the college newspaper. So I never really let it go. And I always bought comic books. Um, I have friends, still have friends to this day who, when we get together, we talk about driving the hour and a half from the Ole Miss campus in Oxford, Mississippi, all the way to the comic book stores in Memphis on Wednesdays, because that was the day we were sure all of the new comic books would be in. And then we would buy our comic books. We would go to Crystal's, buy Crystal Burgers, and sit in Crystal's and read our comic books before driving the hour and a half back to campus. So I never really let go of the comic books, but I got more into the journalism writing for like the first part of my career. And it brought me from Mississippi to South Carolina to New York and then to Washington, where I am now. I would imagine that the outrageous storylines and behavior of comics 
prepared you well for Washington, D.C. <laughs> you got it. Comic books will, will definitely teach you that anything can happen. And the world of Washington politics will confirm that on a daily basis. There you go. There you go. And of, of course, journalism, it, it, you know, that's a, that's a strict master. You know, it, it wants quick deadlines and you have to learn to write economically, fast, accurately. Right. I can see how that's such great training ground for when you eventually took on a second job, really, because you stayed in journalism, but then you went to, uh, you did two fiction novels, two nonfiction novels and two fiction novels. We have to talk about the fiction novels because there are, there's maybe a handful of people who are working nationally recognized journalists and published Star Wars and Marvel authors. That is an accomplishment. How, what, what's the secret origin? Did you get hit with a camera <laughs> bar? What happened? <laughs> yeah, and, and, okay, and we'll so talk about that. And then I want to come back to the nonfiction too. But yeah, go, go sure. forth on the fiction. First. I mean, honestly, the, the two worlds actually merged for me. So one of the things that I always said, okay, so let me back up to the, the real origin. All right. So while I was studying with Barry Hanna in, at Ole Miss, he was my short story writing instructor. And to be honest with you, I had to take his class twice because the first time I took it, I was so intent on the journalism part. I never actually got around to writing the short story parts that I was supposed to do for his class. And of course, I was the editor of the newspaper. and There was no way somebody was going to give me a D and Barry Hanna gave me a D and I could not stand to have a D on my transcript. So I took his class again. And after I took it the second time, Barry, I remember Barry Hannah and I went out to one of the uh, bars in Oxford. I think there was a book signing and some author, he wanted us all to go meet. I don't remember who it was at this point, but it was someone that we wanted to go see. So Barry and I are talking about what I'm going to do after college because I'm a senior. And I tell him that, you know, I do want to write a book someday, but I'm going to be a journalist. I have a, a, I have a job waiting for me as a journalist. So I don't have time to just sit and contemplate and write a book when I need to have bills. I have bills I need to pay. So I'm going to go for the job. And Barry Hannah tells me one day you're going to have to make a choice between being a journalist and being an author. It's really hard to be both at the same time. And I was like, with the arrogance of youth, I was like, oh, I can do it all. I'm not really worried about that. <laughs> So I become a journalist. I, and I tell myself I'm only going to be a journalist for five years. By that point, I should meet. I have met interesting people. I've done interesting things. And I have enough to write that great American novel. Well, five years goes by. I bought a car. I bought stuff. I have bills. I'm traveling. So I'm like, I, let me just keep this paying job for a little bit more. I'm having fun. I'm getting a little recognition. I can't complain. Then another five years goes by. I'm now in Washington. I'm in the White House. I'm like, I can't really, I can't let it go now. And then another two or three years goes by. And now I'm married. And I start seeing the clock ticking. Mm. And I'm like, 
if I'm ever going to write a book, I need to do it now or I'll be resentful for the rest of my life that I never did the thing I said I was going to do. So I actually quit AP and said I was going to write a book. Wait, you quit Associated Press. You just right walked after the, out on a I, I walked. I remember I, the, my very last story was the confirmation of Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito. That was the last thing I wrote, and I quit. Now, I had an idea for a book. I didn't actually have, like, a proposal, an agent, a chapter. I didn't have any of that. I just said, you know what? You said you were going to write a book, and so you should do it now. And that's actually when I wrote my first book, which is called Black Men Built the Capital. That's, that was the book I decided to write. That's nonfiction. So I, now, my first book was a nonfiction book. Mm-hmm. So I write Black Men Built the Capital. And I'm having a great time being a writer. The book it hasn't published because I'm now married and we have some rental property. So we're not cash poor anymore. But I'm at home every day. I'm doing all this great research. I'm, I'm having a ball. And then one day my wife tells me that we're pregnant. Ah. And my wife was a contractor, which meant that we didn't have any health insurance. So my carefree life as a writer is quickly becoming now a problem. And AP graciously said that I could come back as national labor writer. So, So that is why I went back to being a journalist, because I was the health insurance. So I wrote... Black Black Men Built the Capital came out in 2007. I knew I wanted to write a second book. And there was a part of Black Men Built the Capital that I hadn't really investigated. I knew that Black Men Built the Capital, but there was so much to talk about when it came to the White House. I just didn't have room in this book. So AP assigns me to cover Barack Obama's first presidential campaign. Barack Obama comes down to Mississippi, does a debate at Ole Miss, which is my alma mater. And so I'm trailing Barack Obama around and I'm sitting on the press bus outside of Barack Obama's townhouse in Chicago. And I'm thinking about all of the African-Americans who have gone through the White House, but he would be the first one to be president. And then then it hits me. Who are these African-Americans? Who were these slaves that lived there? Where did they come from? What did they do? What happened when their president lost or was term limited out? Nobody had ever written that before. And I remember calling my editor, the editor of Black Men Built the Capital, from that bus and saying, I know exactly what I want to do next. I want to write a trilogy. We're going, I'm going to write three books. The first book is going to be about the slaves of the White House. The second book is going to be about the butlers and the maids of the White House. And the third book is going to be about the professional employees and then a possible president of the White House. And my my editor was like, that sounds really great. I need a proposal. Let's get going on it. And as I'm working on the proposal. Did they buy the trip? She she guaranteed me that they were going to buy it. Yeah, a little freeze. So I start. I start, can, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you, yeah. Okay, all right, Hello. all right. So as I start writing 
the first part of the trilogy, I'm doing all of the research. And of course, I'm still a journalist at this time. And Barack Obama has yeah, so you, won. You have- I'm sorry. Hold, hold on a second, uh, Jesse. What yeah. are you saying, Chris? I think he's frozen. Yeah, he is. Uh... Oh, now you're back. Yeah, you were frozen. Okay. That was weird because everyone else seemed frozen. That was very strange. And now you're, <laughs> now you're out of sync. Well, that wouldn't be the first time. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, go ahead. Pick up from there, uh, Jesse. All right. So, so I'm still a journalist at the same time. And so now I am covering federal courts. And while I'm covering federal courts, I decided that, you know, all this research I'm doing on some of the slaves and the butlers of the White House, I can write a really good journalistic story about some of the living butlers in the White House who've never seen a black president. And so I start working on this story. This is about the time that Will Haygood's The Butler, it comes out. And so my editor calls me when she sees a story in the post and says, well, Will Haygood's now going to get a contract to write this book. Why don't you concentrate on the era before the book, which would be the slaves? So I end up writing The Invisibles, the untold story of African-American slaves in the White House. Now, these books took 10 years. From a lot of the same research, these books took 10 years. And I start doing publicity for the Invisibles. I'm doing an event at Louisiana State University at LSU when I get a call from an editor at Lucasfilm who says, I just finished reading The Invisibles. I absolutely love this book. Are you a Star Wars fan? (laughs) And I, I say, well, I mean, it was the first movie I ever saw in a movie theater, so I guess I can say yes. And she says, well, we have this new Star Wars movie coming out. There's this new character called Finn, and we want someone to write a book about it. Would you be interested in doing this? And I, to be honest with you, I said no. Oh. And the reason why I said no is because for the previous decade, I had skipped family vacation, family obligations to write these two nonfiction books. And when I finished with The Invisibles, I told my wife that I was going to take at least two years off before I get into any other new project. Mm. And so I told the editor from Lucasfilm that I would love to do it, but unfortunately I promised my wife that I wouldn't get into any other projects for another couple of years to get some family time. But hold on one second. Let me call my wife and just let her weigh in on this decision I'm about to make. So I hang up on Skywalker Ranch and call my wife here in D.C. and said, honey, I know I promised you that I wasn't going to write anything else for a few years. I just want you to know that I got a call from Lucasfilm and they want me to work on a book about their, with a character from their new movie. I want you to know that I said no. 
because I promised you I wasn't going to work on anything for the next couple of years. And the phone is just silent for a few Ooh. minutes. <laughs> and then she goes, you dummy, call them back. <laughs> so I immediately call them back and say, of course I'll do this. I would love to do this. <laughs> but of course, there's always a catch to everything. The catch was that the movie had just come out. So they needed this book really fast. And so they said, you, you have about three months to finish the whole thing. Oh, uh, luckily for me, it was, they want what they wanted was a junior novel. But being a writer, of course, I don't write short. So they asked me for about 15,000 words and I wrote 45,000. <laughs> and so, <laughs> We spent some time editing it back down to what they actually asked me for. So that was Star Wars The Force Awakens Finn story. Wow. That's amazing. Just as soon as Finn's story comes out, I get a call from an editor at Marvel who says, I've read The Invisibles. Now I read Finn's story. You, I absolutely love what you're doing. Have you ever heard of the Black Panther? And I'm like, what are you talking about? All of those comic books are in my basement. He's like, well, you know, there's a Black Panther movie coming out in a couple of years, and Marvel wants to adapt one of the more recent origin stories of the Black Panther into a novel to help introduce this character to people who don't read comic books. And I was like, okay, so which storyline are you doing? They were like, well, you know, Reginald Hudlin's first storyline. I was like, I have the originals of all of those in my in my basement. They were like, we can send you research material. I'm like, I don't need it. I got, I got it. I don't know. I got all this stuff. Now, if you want to send it to me digitized, I can say I'll take that. But don't send me any more comic books because my <laughs> wife is already pissed off that the whole basement closet is filled with comic books. <laughs> so that's how I ended up writing Black Panther, who is the Black Panther, because. One, the, the, all of the projects I've done, one has led, each one has led to the next project, which is how also I ended up with Black Panther Tales of Wakanda, because after I finished Who is the Black Panther, Marvel said, well, what do you want to do next? And one of <laughs> Who my, does the Black Panther know? <laughs> well, I mean, one of my favorite books is The Further Adventures of, of Batman which is an anthology that was done by Martin, I think Martin Greenberg, when right. the, when the, the uh, first Michael Keaton Batman movie came out. Mm-hmm. And I still have my tattered copy of that anthology here in my bedroom. So I was like, well, if the Michael Keaton Batman movie was transformational enough for it to deserve an anthology, written by some of the greatest science fiction writers, I know the Black Panther movie deserves a equally great anthology written by equally great writers. So I think, Marvel, you want to put together this anthology. And I would love to be one of the writers. And I've said that to Marvel, I believe, maybe two months after the movie came out, and I hear radio silence. I get nothing. Wow. So in December of 20, I believe in December of 2018, Marvel called me back and says, we'd love your idea, 
and by the way, you're the editor. And I'm like, oh, really? I just wanted to write a couple of the stories that were in there. Like, oh, no, no, no. We want you to put everything together. I'm like, well, will I have time to write anything? Like, oh, no, no. You'll take care of all of that. And literally, that's how my involvement in Tales of Wakanda started. I just wanted to read it. But (laughs) it turns out that the only way I was going to be able to read it was to actually put it together myself. Okay, so I gotta, I gotta, I've been lucky. I got to ask you, I got to ask you just to backpedal just a little bit. You've, okay. covered, you've covered such a wide, wide, wide world of, of, of a journey from, from as Chris started it out, from the farm, you know, from the farm as a kid <laughs> with the comics, all the way to, you know, comics well, again, but all that <laughs> stuff in between. What was your mindset? From let's just say, because you started as an intern with AP, what right. was the mindset once you got into the mechanics of politics and journalism? What was it like for you? Because I mean, there's a part of you that was sort of creatively oriented, and then you put that aside. So what what was that impact like for you? Well, one of the things that um, unites all types of writers is that in the end, we're all telling a story. Mm-hmm. Now in journalism, we're telling the story of yesterday. We literally are just reporting things that have just happened the day before. But if you wanted to find out what happened the day before, you could go read a transcript. You could go read meeting notes. But the only way that we read them as consumers is that someone takes the time to turn it into a story. So I I never gave up storytelling. Mm. I just was telling the story of yesterday and things that really had actually happened. Now, nowadays, and and let me just say this for just really quickly, because maybe this will help some writers out there. and Maybe this will help some journalists. (laughs) I made the choice to stay away from fiction consciously when I was a professional journalist for a very long time because my assumption was if I turned out to be really good at making things up for fiction, perhaps some people would accuse me of doing the same thing in my nonfiction. So if I was really good at concocting stories out of nowhere, somebody could possibly accuse me of doing the same thing in my journalism. So that's why for years I just wrote nonfiction. I didn't even consider trying to write any fiction. But finally, I I got over that uh, mental block because I realized that there are people out there who are going to accuse you of doing nefarious things no matter what you do. You might as well do the things that you enjoy. So I, I decided to not worry about coming up with any other pen name that I would just write as myself and see what happened. So I, today, I don't think there's any that anyone should worry about people being accusing them of, um, of really mixing their fiction and their nonfiction. We're all just trying to tell the best stories we can. As a journalist, the story just has to be true and you have to be able to prove that it's true. In fiction, I just have to convince you 
that the world that I'm creating is realistic enough for you to believe in it and enjoy the story. Mm. So I had to, I, to convince my brain that you can do both and be legitimate at both. Mm. And it took me a while to make myself believe that. And by the way, I should say, nobody told me that I couldn't do both. It was something that I came up with myself for some strange reason. And for years, I lived by that credo that if you're doing nonfiction, you can't write fiction. Now, by the way, I'll tell you that I was an idiot and I should have been doing the fiction long time ago. But at least I'm at a point now where I can I can see where I was wrong. And really, I'm a little upset at myself for wasting years I could have been doing both instead of just trying to do one. Did I answer that question in there anywhere? <laughs> yes, yes, you did. Um, since we're kind of talk, talking about the writing process a bit in that answer, um, if you could help well, a lot of our uh, listeners or viewers are um, aspiring writers. So if you could talk about the different writers' head or writing habits you have for journalism versus fiction. Oh, excuse me, excuse me, if I can add to that. Journalism, nonfiction, fiction. Right. Um, one of the things that I, I didn't mention earlier, I did mention earlier that both of my parents were teachers. Sure. I did not mention that my mother was an English teacher, and in fact, she was my seventh and eighth grade English teacher in Mount Pleasant, Mississippi. So I mentioned this for a reason. One of the things that many writers disagree on is outline. I am the type of writer who, in my journalistic career, I never outlined anything. Because I'm writing a thousand words, maybe 2,000 at the max, and I can keep all of that in my head without having to commit Story, uh, think about story structure uh, before I write the story. I can, I can do that story in my head. When I started writing Black Men Built the Capitol, I tried to keep 85,000 words in my head <laughs> and quickly discovered that I spent a weekend writing about 20,000 words that did not fit into the book I was writing. Wow. So I remember very sheepishly having to call my mother and say, remember when you taught us in seventh grade how to outline? Can you go through that again for me? Because I'm kind of figuring out that I sort of need to know how to outline again. Oh, I love it. That's so great. starting from Black Men Built the Capitol, I lay out everything I write and I outline in advance because I don't want to get halfway through anything and say what happens next. Some writers tell me that they can get into the story and the characters talk to them and the characters tell them where the story is going next. I have never had any of my characters do that for me. I always sit and outline everything that's going to happen from beginning to middle to end before I start writing a word because I sort of need to know what's going to happen next before I get into the middle of the story. Now, that doesn't mean the story won't change or I'll start writing it and I'll come up with a better idea and I have to change the outline. But the way I describe it to writing students now is, 
If you're going to drive from New York to Los Angeles, you're going to take your cell phone and you're going to, to open up Google Maps and you're going to say your starting point is New, is New York. And you're going to put your endpoint, which is going to be Los Angeles. You may change the route, but you're going to say this is how it starts. This is how it ends. Why wouldn't you do that with your story? Just write down, this is where the story starts. And this is where the story ends, and this is how I'm going to get there. Some writers don't work like that. That turns out to be the pretty much the only way I can work. You, you have just, um, if you run into any of my screenwriting students for the past four years, about half of them will say that because that was a mantra that I would say to them. The, the very same analogy from New York to Los Angeles, by the way, the roots. I mean, oh, I even talked about diners, you know, side roads, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's almost the same analogy, but you're right. You know, it is, it is a journey and it's a journey that you want to have some sense of where you're going, even though, yeah, there's a flexibility about changing directions. Yeah. I mean, there, there are a lot of there are a lot of different tools that you can use. Some people use Scrivener. Some people just use um, some people use a Microsoft Word. To me, it does, the tool doesn't matter. Right. But as long as you have an idea of the story, how the story is going to work, and some people use really detailed. I I have a friend who writes teenage vampire fiction, who will write ten page outline going through each paragraph, going through each chapter and saying, well, this is the high point of this chapter and this is the low point. I have people who, I've worked with people who will write 10 lines that will look like chapter headers and that's enough of an outline. For them. Hmm. My only thing is you have to figure out what works for you. What gets you to write that next 10,000 words in, in, in the book? Because for a lot of people, they start writing they have this great chapter one and they never get to chapter two. And the world's greatest chapter one is still an unfinished book. So whatever gets you to write that next chapter and that next chapter, whether it's the character speaking to you, whether it's the uh, writing a, a comprehensive outline, whether it's talking the story out loud, the key is to finishing the book because what writing really is, is rewriting. So once you get that book finished or that screenplay finished, you're going to have to go back and make it better anyway. I call it making it pretty. You got to go back and make it pretty anyway, but you can't make something pretty that doesn't exist. Mm. So first you just got to make sure it exists. So whatever it takes to get that first draft on your computer or in your notebook or however you're doing it, that's what you do. For me, that's finishing the outline first. And then going back and filling in the outline and eventually getting around to having all of the words. Uh, can we talk about character for a minute? Because yeah. um, I, I noticed an interesting uh, uh, comparison, potentially. Uh, when you did your two nonfiction stories, you know, Black Men Built the Capital and The Invisibles, I'm sure that was a lot of research, but still some characters had to emerge from your research and when you were asked to do who is the black panther you had already done a lifetime of research so what's what were the similarities and 
differences between what you chose to put in your nonfiction to show character and what you chose to put in the, uh, the Black Panther book to show character? Well, I mean, one of the hardest things to do, especially when writing about a issue like slavery, mm -hmm. is to figure out how to make the reader care. Mm -hmm. I remember being in a workshop uh, and I was telling people about, the, telling this group of writers about the Invisibles and what the book was going to, I was giving my elevator pitch. And I remember one of the writers raising her hand and saying, why do I care? What does this have to do with me? Why would I buy this book? I, my, my ancestors weren't slaves. Why do I care about this? And I was really hurt. <laughs> I, I remember being really hurt by that comment. Because why wouldn't you care? This is American history. This is how we got from there to here. Why wouldn't everybody care? But that's when I realized that people don't relate to things. People relate to people. Right. So if I was going to tell this story, I was going to have to tell this story revolving around the people that it happened to. Not the institutions, the people. So when I wrote The Invisibles, I actually focused on a different slave in each chapter. Uh, there, I think there are like 12 chapters. There are like 12 different slaves that highlight each chapter. And I tell their life story and then talk about the institution and the history of slavery through that person's experience wherever they were at that point. So I learned through that that no matter what else you're writing about, even in journalism, it comes down to relating to a person that the thing is happening to. If I'm writing about illegal immigration, I'm not going to write about the bill or the law. I'm going to write about a person who is illegally coming into America through Canada or Mexico or through LAX or however they're happening. It's happening because that's how people will relate to the story. Right. So when it comes to around to doing fiction, one of the first things I did when I got the script to Star Wars, The Force Awakens, and then when they said to, I went back and got my Who is the Black Panther comic books, was to sit with an outline and say, who are the people that I care about in this story, in these stories. So with and Black why Panther, do you care? And why do I care? With Black Panther, it was not only was this a story of T'Challa, it's actually also a story of Shuri. Mm -hmm. And you'll see in my novel, there's a lot more of Shuri than there was in the original comic books. Because there Shuri was a character that back then was not being explored enough. There was so much you could tell with her and how T'Challa related to her. That made his story richer mm, by yeah. showing the sibling rivalry between those two. Um, and the same thing with Finn. Um, I actually came up with a couple of other characters that are not in the movie to bounce off of Finn to show his maturity. Now, one of the 
one of the problems always with using licensed characters is that there's only so much you can do with them. Um, for example, when I was working with Finn, I could only go as far as Star Wars The Force Awakens goes. But, and if, we, if you've seen that movie, Finn's story ends when Kylo Ren slashes him across the back with a lightsaber. His right. story just stops. But, I mean, that's not a really good ending to a book <laughs> to say, oops, I just got hit. Let's, so that's it. <laughs> um, so I had to sort of find a way to build up to that point. And the way I did it was come up with some characters that Finn works with in Stormtrooper school. He's been practicing. One of the things that bothers me is that there are always these questions that aren't, aren't quite answered. Like, for example, how does a stormtrooper know how to use a lightsaber? Those are not weapons they practice with. Right. They've never shown any stormtrooper using a lightsaber, but Finn, all of a sudden, at the end of Force Awakens, is fighting a Jedi master, a Sith master, and didn't get his head chopped off in the first two seconds. Yeah. How does that happen? Well, for me, the reason why that happens is because the um, the Empire has learned from its mistakes. So its storm its stormtroopers now practice against enemies with lightsabers, and Finn just happens to be one of the best people at fighting with lightsabers because he's practiced it. But of course, that means who did he practice against? So, et cetera. So you you have to find ways to make your character live in a world where that character is learning and growing. Mm. So I, I had some people with one of their, some of their first reactions to who is the black Panther was that this is really a Shuri book. And I'm like, yeah, you know, you're, you're sort of right because <laughs> the way T'Challa learns and grows is through his relationship with Shuri. Yeah. So you when you're dealing when you're dealing with characters, you're not just dealing with that one character. You're dealing with the, the people around them that's showing how that person is learning and growing, and maybe sometimes even devolving. But they're showing how that person evolves through their relationship with that person. I I I want to just ask you a couple of things. Uh, say a couple of things um, because I know we're uh, we're running short on time. Chris, I know you've got some more questions. and I have only have, I only have one more. I want to talk about Tales of Wakanda and how terrible it was <laughs> to work with prima donnas like Alex Simmons. <laughs> nice segue there, Chris. <laughs> actually, actually, my, my second question does deal with Tales of Wakanda. So let me ask my second to last question first. I noticed that you, because uh, you're also an educator and you're a professor, you know, assistant professor at, uh, was it Washington? No, at uh, George Washington. George, George Washington, Washington. George Washington University, right. And it said that you're teaching <laughs> ethics. <laughs> much needed, much needed. <laughs> well, is that like trying to sell buggy whips now? I mean, you know. <laughs> you know. I, I, you, because you had said earlier about why you had chosen to only write as a journalist for so many years, because you didn't want people to think that because you could also write fiction, you might be making up stuff. 
And that seems to be what a lot of people are doing now is making up stuff that's supposed to be fact. So not to get into politics, but to get into ethics. What is it like for you and the students that you're encountering to discuss and ostensibly teach ethics? Well, okay, so first I've taught journalism ethics for about mm, five years now. I started teaching it at the University of Arkansas during the Clinton-Trump presidential race, which was a very interesting place to be teaching journalism ethics at that time. Mm. And then I went on to teach it at Georgetown University and New York University. Now I'm teach, actually teaching intro to news writing and advanced news writing. But I, because of my time in ethics, that's now part of everything I do. Because as someone who has spent more than 30 years in professional journalism, I don't want students coming out of college and thinking they can do these things in journalism when you can't. So I see myself now as a bit of a gatekeeper. And I I finally had to realize that according to my students, I'm old. And so I'm now one of those old fogies standing against the wall, railing against the new form of whatever is going on You're in journalism. You're him building. Yeah. Exactly, As, exactly. Uh, Jesse, has your experience in writing Finn and the Star Wars book helped you at all in journalism class to see someone about to go to the dark side? <laughs> Actually, I, I, hadn't, I hadn't thought about that. I hadn't thought about that at all. But one of the things I I, I try to do is I try to explain to students that there's a reason why these rules exist. If you're going to break the rules, at least you have to know what the rules are first. You can't break them without knowing what they are. And you also have to realize that there's a reason why these rules were put in place the first time. So as we talk about journalism and how it's going to um, go in the future, we have to figure out why the rules that exist today were put in place the first time. So we talk a lot about the history of journalism, yellow journalism, civil rights journalism, and how those apply to social media and the internet today. A lot of, for a lot of college journalists at this point, they've never picked up a newspaper and read it. Where they get their news is from the internet, from social media, from websites. But just because we're the medium of how we get our news changes doesn't mean the method of getting the news of us as journalists finding the news and providing it to our consumers must change as well. All it means is that we have to decide where we stand as writers and as journalists and figure out whether the whether giving up the veneer of respectability that we've had is worth it to chase an audience that may or may not stay with us. Mm. If it was me, I would say that the time-honored journalistic ethic rules 
can still survive even in the internet age because people can find information anywhere. What they can't find is context. And that's what we as journalists should be providing. You can look on Twitter and find out a building is burning on your block, but it will take you to the newspaper or the newspaper website the next day to find out that building has been under investigation for the past 10 years for not having smoke detectors. So mm-hmm. information has, with the internet has made information easy to find. What it has not made easy to find is context. And as journalists, that's what we should be providing. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So then my last question, which goes back to what Chris was saying. <laughs> you, after, after putting your foot into the bear trap of, of presenting to Marvel the concept of this anthology, Black Panther, Tales of Wakanda, and then them going, hey, you're the editor. Okay. Suddenly there's 18 different people that you have to, well, A, you chose, but then have to work with, read their material, respond as an editor, deal with deadlines, all of that. What, what part of that process can you talk about and what was it like for you? Well, I, I will start out by saying that I was the editor of the student newspaper at the University of Mississippi in my final year at Ole Miss. And when I finished that job, I swore I would never be the editor of anything ever again for the rest of my life. <laughs> so that, that should tell you how much I enjoy the idea of editing. But one of the, the, the great thing about being um, the, the editor of Tales of Wakanda was that I got to go to people I admire, people who I wanted to see their version of Wakanda because surprisingly enough, a lot of people have different ideas about what Wakanda should be like. So I wanted to read all of these different versions of Wakanda and all these different stories that you could tell about Wakanda. And I was lucky enough to be able to work with a bunch of talented writers who I went to and said, what if you had your way, what would you be writing? And when it came to Black Panther. And so I was lucky enough that I was able to read a lot of this material and the writers were so good. It really didn't require all that much editing. I, there was some polishing here and there. And I can say that there was maybe one or two writers where I said to another professional editor, hey, um, can you read behind me here? Because I need to know if this writer is going to be really mad at me because I'm going to change a bunch of this stuff to make the story better. There was only maybe one or two stories in which I actually said that. Most of the work you see in the book is the work of the writer. There were a couple of writers where that had to go through three or four different versions, and there were some things that really didn't work, because in the end, the Black Panther is a Disney product now. And there are only certain things that Disney will allow you to do. I will tell you, for example, one of the writers was writing a story about 
a pandemic. And Disney's like, no, we cannot do this. I'm like, well, I mean, it's not like this is the, we're in the first pandemic the world has ever seen. This has obviously happened before, but Disney was like, no, we are not, we're not going to publish a story about a pandemic. And so I had to go back to the writer and say, well, you know, I really like the idea, but can we do it without a pandemic happening? And the writer was like, oh, well, why are they going to kill my idea? I'm like, no, 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 no. We can make it work. And the story ended up, I think, being better because the writer was able to uh, pare the story down to its bare bones. This is the idea. And we can do the same idea in a different way. So I actually found myself being more of a mediator than being what the classic editor stands. Because everyone I wanted to read was a professional writer. So I, I wasn't worried about having to like make verbs conjugate or having to worry about this idea is not going to be publishable. But it's more like, how do we make this work in the world that Disney wants us to work in? Because we were walking a really fine line between, well, are we working in the movie world? Are we working in the comic book world? Are we working in the, in the universe I created for that Black Panther novel? So where are we? And I was like, as long as the character is true to what Stanley and Jack Kirby came up with, everything else is details. Continuity is details at that point because people want to read the character. They don't care about the universe as much as they do the character right now. So it was, it, I, I won't, I'm not going to say it was easy because it wasn't because I'm a, I was learning again and having bad flashbacks to having fights with people about stories in college. But I will say it was truly enjoyable and a experience I hope to, uh, to go through again sometime soon. That's fantastic. Alex, you know, we have an amazing opportunity here. Tell the damn story could scoop the entire pop culture world. All we have to do is ask Jesse Holland, what are you working on next? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) As a professional writer now, I am always working on something. Uh, I just had my first two comic books published by DC Comics. I wrote a short DC comic for them for their Represent series that was semi-autobiographical called Heritage about growing up on a farm. And just this month, my second story, which was a short Superman story for uh, their Superman Red and Blue anthology came out called Deadline. One of the things I will tell anybody who's a writer, you write what you know. Mm. So the first two things in comic books I, I wrote about was living on a farm and Clark Kent as a journalist. You write what you know. So I immediately go back to the well of the things that I know. I am now working, trying to work on several other things. Nothing I can officially announce oh, yet. Come on. Nothing just I can hint. officially <laughs> announce yet. <laughs> let's, let's just say I that working on Black Panther Tales of Wakanda did convince me that there is some merit to being an editor of an anthology. 
And so hopefully I'll be ready to announce that as soon as I get some names on some contracts soon, I'll be able to announce the next anthology and hopefully cross your fingers, some other really exciting stuff in the future really soon. Gotcha. 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 Um, Uh, Chris, yeah. What else do you want to say? Well, since you brought up, write what you know. I'm going to go just a, a, a little further. This is actually a serious question. I know I was goofing around a minute ago. Um, in recent months, we on Tell the Damn Story have, have talked uh, repeatedly about who gets to write one. Mm. You know, um, I am fairly pale and I have written, <laughs> and I have written uh, some blackjack stories. Uh, but it, there was some talk, uh, I guess about a six to, uh, a six months to a year ago about whether that is appropriate anymore. Um, there was an LGBTQ plus story recently, which the editors wanted me to go to a sensitivity editor, um, to, to get the nuances right. Um, so when, as we're progressing, um, how do we continue forward when we, you know, from what, right, what you know to inclusion? How, how would you advise going, going in that direction? I will tell you that I am teaching an entire class on culture writing in the fall where I will be teaching students specifically about writing about cultures that are not your own in journalism. Because as writers, we're going to eventually be asked to write about a culture that is not your own. Whether that culture is a a culture, a racial culture, a sexual culture, a gender culture, a caste culture, a regional culture. We're always going, you're eventually going to be asked to write a culture not your own. And the thing I emphasize, I've taught this class twice before. The thing I emphasize is that you have to, A, be respectful when you're writing a culture not your own, and B, you have to research it. Sure. What, but so many writers fall into the trap of they don't end up writing about other cultures. They end up writing about the stereotypes they've heard about other cultures. So I will never tell someone that you can't write this story because you're X, Y, Z. That would be like me saying, someone saying to me, well, you can't write Batman because you're black and you don't understand what it's like to be a rich white billionaire. Well, I I can promise you I don't understand what it's like to be a billionaire, (laughs) but I can research. I can research and write the best story I can because there are some stories that are universal. No, that you can tell no matter who you are. But if I'm going to write about, for example, if I'm going to write a story based in London, I can't write that story from watching Sherlock on BBC. I'm going to have to do just a little more work to make that story sound believable. When I was working on my Black Panther novel, I spent two months researching West Africa. So I would be able to talk about some of the agriculture, some of the clothing, some of the food, instead of just making it up out of whole cloth. Because I wanted someone who 
was African, not African-American, African to read the book and be able to say, hey, at least they tried to make sure that it was representative of what is actually here. So I would never tell anyone that they can't write about a culture not their own, but I would definitely tell you if you're going to be lazy about it, don't. Right. Because it, you will cause more harm than you than you will actually make someone happy that you're including them in your book. Follow up, if, I don't, if you don't mind. Um, sure. Do you feel that um, due diligence is to a higher degree, say, in the last five or so years than it may have been before that? Um, you know, you can do research, but it, I, I think there's um, there, there's a feeling that you need whatever that level was. You need to go higher now or deeper into the research. Um, I find that I go, I, you know, what I if I was researching for two weeks in the past, it's a month now or something like that. Um, do you see, feel any difference in the last few years or? I, I won't say that the due diligence has gotten greater. I will say that we have matured as a culture to move away from the lazy work that we had been doing in the past. Uh, I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to portray it as, cause I hate the whole idea of woke culture and all of that. What I, what I will say is that we're finally figuring out that it requires a little more work to do the thing that we've always been trying to do anyway. Right. So that it actually, that instead of just throwing something out there, it actually takes a little research and perhaps a little empathy to do it sure. correctly. Yep. So I'm, I, I will give you, I'll, I'll give you a, a, actually a personal example. When I was writing Black Panther Tales of Wakanda, I had an editor who was not black come to me on, I think it was like the third or fourth draft and say, did you know that every description of a black female skin color that you have in this book is food related? She's caramel colored. She's cocoa colored. And it was, this was, as a black man, this was not something that I had ever noticed, but apparently I did it throughout the entire book. And so we quickly went back and I changed all of those descriptions. But it isn't that there's anything that I felt upset that quote unquote woke culture says that I shouldn't do this. It's just that it's just a pattern that shouldn't exist because I wouldn't write about anyone else like that. Right. So why was I doing it here? And I was doing it here without even recognizing. It. And I'm glad someone said before the book came out, that <laughs> this, you're doing this and something that I had my eye on in my own writing from that point. How am I describing people? How do I describe skin color? How do I describe how people dress? So it's not that I wasn't woke when I did that. It was that it was something that I didn't recognize. And I'm glad someone pointed it out to me. 
So I can be cognizant of this from this point on. And we certainly that makes any sense. This book on the recipe shelf, you know, on the cooking. Right, exactly. (laughs) That's not what. That's not. That's not the goal. It's not the goal. Um, You know, Jesse, you got to come back uh, because I would love to. There's there's plenty of, to to use the proper or more familiar term for you considering uh, your your past. There there's plenty of field that has not been plowed here. Yeah. <laughs> 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 or you planted some seeds that I feel we need to nurture and watch them grow. So yeah, if you would at some point, please do. Uh, we'll we'll happy to have you come back and and to to do more dialogue about the creative process and your experiences and all that. And especially the, the, the areas of journalism too, because, you know, telling, telling the damn story for Chris and I has always been about telling the story, whether it's fictional or non-fictional, but, you know, sometimes people anticipate, Oh, well, you're talking about films, you're talking about books, you're talking about comics, it's all fiction, but no, you know, the, the story of the human condition is powerful and 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 it should be uh, related in um, a genuine, authentic, and and an ethical manner whenever journalism is involved. And I think that you uh, touched on that, and I would love to hear some more about that at some point. So yeah, absolutely, you're 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 you got a round trip ticket here. All right, because you you know I would I I would be more than happy to spend another two or three hours talking about this because this oh, yeah. is all I talk about. So Then, then it, it shall be. It shall become. Make it so, number one, right? We will so. have you back. And thank you for making... By the, cause, by the way, everybody, audience-wise, uh, we are on the path to uh, the last eight episodes leading up to our 200th episode. And so, Jesse, thank you for helping Chris and I celebrate, you know, which is going to be 200 episodes of, of, of um, madness, creative madness. Thank you for joining yes. us. Yes, thank you no, very thank much. Thank you so much. Great, and, great and please, appreciate it. And please invite me back anytime. I would absolutely love it. I love talking about this stuff. Okay, great. What did you say, Chris? I just said it was a great interview. Thank you very much. Uh, is that what you said? <laughs> yeah. Okay. okay, so everybody, thanks very much. And once again, you know, uh, in the comments section or, or in, a, in an email or whatever, let us know what you thought of the episode. Um, send us questions, tips, all that kind of good stuff, because we're always happy to read, hear about it, know what you're thinking. Oh, buy yeah. Jeff Collins' books. Yes. Oh, yes. So go buy, buy those books. Yes. Buy the book. I, I, that, that's the one thing that I, as editor, I keep having to, to, to remind myself. You got to sell the product. So go buy Black Panther Tales of Wakanda right now. Right. And you know what? Since we got the capabilities now, you can also look up The Invisibles. You can look, also look up Black Men Built the White House. You know, you can definitely look for these Who is books. Black Panther? Yeah. Yeah, there's a good four purchases you can make, people. Let's go. And it's and the summer's <laughs> coming, man. Get your summer reading stack. Yeah. Uh, you know, top it off. Okay, thanks very much, man. Thanks very much, guys. Good to see you. Thank, Thank you, you very much.